You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another episode of the Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined by Shotgun Spratling. We're back. We took a little bit of a hiatus. Shotgun, I'm blaming you. You were a traveling man. I know you're going to get mad at me and say something where it could be my fault. It's not. It's yours. <laughs> Moving on. Um, as a reminder, you guys can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Megaphone. You can also email us your questions or submissions to your podcast at familyfeudpod at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who sent us emails. We, were, we will answer them later on in the show. But like I said, we're back. We have a lot to talk about. I it guess- was a bye week. <laughs> it was a bye week. Why are you blaming me for the bye week? But it was before Notre Dame. A little anticlimactic for the rivalry matchup, if you will. We're not a preview show necessarily. True. We look at things, but we look more backwards. And we did our you know, mid-season awards with Chris Trevino the That's week before. True. So That's true. It seemed like there wasn't too much to talk about there. So I decided to, to go and... Make a uh, college tour of the Midwest. You yeah, know? you did make a grand tour. You also did some some fun things that will come out soon. Yes, I'm hopefully, putting, a, I'm putting a deadline on you. Oh no, that sounds like. Trouble. Can I not tell the people what you did? No, it's fine. Go for it. So you got to see the the Illinois transfers, correct? I did. I stopped by uh, Illinois uh, during the trip and got to chat with Oluwale Batiku Jr., uh, Trayvon Sydney, and Josh Marbebe about their experience and. You know, just kind of talking about the transfer portal, you know, I'm kind of fascinated with it and how it's changed, you know, the, the dynamic for some players and, you know, how it's a new recruiting cycle, but also, you know, there's some uncertainty there, you know, just talking with those guys, it's a business decision. It's a lot different, you know, than coming out of high school where yeah. you're, you know, you go in, you expect, Hey, I can work my way up the depth chart or I'm going to come in. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show them as a freshman. Now it's, I got to look at this depth chart. I got to know that I'm going to get playing time because I only have these, you know, two years a lot of times, maybe even one year, you know, if you're if you're a grad transfer uh, like these guys all were. And so you're looking at different things like that. You're looking for playing time. You're looking for the best fit. You know, it's a, it's a lot different kind of decision. And then just talking to them about how, you know, some schools – you know, are very active in the market, and some schools are, are pretty are slow playing things, and how quickly things can change. You know, whether you know one school fills up the spot, they're looking for a receiver. Okay, well that school fills up its receiver spot, it's not still looking to bring in an extra receiver. They're done. So you know, it it puts a deadline on guys to an extent, and how things can change. You know, and Wole told me that a couple times, you know, he had visits canceled by schools and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a little bit more cutthroat, I think, too. So I'm just kind of fascinated with the transfer portal myself. And those guys, you know, congratulations to them that they found a place where they're able to get some opportunities and they're, you know, they've been having success. You know, you, you love to see that because all three of those guys are really good guys. Yeah. You know, have been covering them for, you know, I think I've been, I think I've seen Trayvon Sydney now for six years or so. I've been yeah. covering him. Yeah, I remember covering his his signing too. It's crazy. Yeah, I think I think I the first time I saw him was after his sophomore year of high school, in between going into his junior year, and obviously Wole, you know, is is has got a fascinating story in itself. So you know, have tried to you know have been following him. You know, even before he was signed, I was like, I hoped he signed at USC just because I wanted to tell the story. Unfortunately, we never got to do that because he never got to get on the field. Uh, but but now I'm going to get a chance to tell a little bit of it. And then Josh Baby is, is like from 15 minutes uh, from my hometown. So, you know, I've had a connection with him and, and Daniel as well, um, you know, while through the recruiting process and stuff. So I've known these guys for a while. So it's fun to get, in, get to catch up with them um, and, and hopefully show that everyone that leaves USC – 
you know, those guys left as alumni. And that was that was probably the one, the, the biggest quote to take away from it because a lot of people were like, why are these kids always transferring, blah, blah, blah. Josh told me, he said, I came to USC, I got my degree, now I've got to go and, you know, got to chase my dreams. Yeah. You know, so he came and got, a, you know, a great degree at USC and now he's going and, and trying to find a place where he's going to get playing time and potentially can move on to the NFL. And he's their leading receiver at, at Illinois. He had a 100-yard game against Michigan on Saturday. You know, obviously, you know, those guys have, have found a, a great place for them to get the opportunities, and they're trying to make the most of it. So it was it was fun to catch up with them and, you know, then go off the record and, and get, you know. The as, juicy stuff. Get, get as much stuff uh, as I can on the USC stuff, but uh, on the side of it. But it, it was it was fun to talk to them. But then I also went to Purdue and Northwestern and uh, Notre Dame early to, to to see some baseball, so you know, just made a made a full tour of it. A full trip, yeah, no, but I'm I'm looking forward to what you're going to put out about that. I've heard bits and pieces of your conversation, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to the final piece. But back to the game on Saturday. I just before I know I play with fire whenever I try and get your overall thoughts, given how long that whole Illinois section just took. But what were your <laughs> overall thoughts from the Notre Dame game? You know, I, I thought the USC played well in certain facets. Um, they made adjustments at the right time in certain facets, but their defense didn't make the big play when they needed it. Their offense was rolling in the second half. They made the adjustments at halftime. They moved the ball pretty well in the first half. They just stalled out continually around the forty yard line. You know, I think it was, you know, five drive their first five drives all made it to at least midfield and you got three points out of it. If they did better there, if there was better execution in that first half, they probably win the game. You know, it, it's one of those games where, you know, there's one if one play changes one way or the other, you you can can turn a game around, and their defense couldn't make that one play on that final Notre Dame drive. You know, an epic drive that takes seven minutes and just wastes all the clock. You know, and they score a touchdown. If you hold them to a field goal there, you know you're you're trailing by six then, and your offense has not been stopped in the second half. Yeah. Um. You know, and they go down and score again anyways. But you know, you just it it felt like if USC got a stop, they would win because their offense was rolling at the time. I thought Keaton Slovis played great. Uh, you know, I just think that there's there's still there's so much talent on the team, and there's still it just feels like oh, if they could just get over that hump, if they yeah, could just get over exactly. that hump, and that's that's how you lose to the number nine team in a three point game. That's how you beat a top ten team in Utah. That's how your the Washington game was probably I think it could have been a lot closer than the score ended up being. You know, I, I think that's how you're in a top twenty game there. There the talent's there, but what is it going to take for them to get over the hump? Yeah, I completely agree. Now, before we get too far into the the details of the game, let's just start off with stock up. Who you got? Uh, you got to start with Marquis Step, obviously playing in his home state and and having a big game there. It was fun to see him be able to perform and how excited he was with the crowd that he had. Because I saw them actually. I don't know if you saw them uh, in the parking lot nearby. Yeah, where we parked, there was a a huge contingent of thirty jerseys. Yeah, and, I saw a lot of step jerseys and some step on the back of them and stuff. So it, it was fun to to see him perform. You always love to see you know when kids get a chance to you know perform on the biggest stage for them. And that's been career the, high night. And that's that's the biggest stage for him so far. Yeah. Now and also interesting is that he his role has expanded. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw it last week when we, or last game against Washington. We said, "Hey, first career, first quarter carry," mm-hmm. which tells you he's getting. You know, the coach is getting a little more confidence. Well, he this game he was in the game a lot more on passing situations than he has been in the past, which tells you that they're 
they're, he's gaining confidence. The staff is gaining confidence in his ability to block and that he can be, which makes it that much tougher on the defense because if he's in and you know he's bowling people over, well, now that safety steps up. Yep. And that's what you saw on the Amon Ross St. Brown touchdown is, you know, I timed it at 1.3 seconds, uh, you know, watching the game of where he was frozen. You know, he was reading the play. 1.3 seconds is a huge amount of time in a game. You know, Amon Ross St. Brown is on the other hash mark, and the hashes are 40 feet apart. So there was about 35 feet of space for him to cover. Uh, now he gets back there, and Amon Ra was not running full speed at the time. He was waiting and, and waiting for the throw and then going to speed up to catch the throw, which is basically what he did. Uh, and Gilman tried to grab him because, you know, there's a lot of grabbing and there was allowed in this game. Instead, great catch by Amon Ra St. Brown, but it all started with the play action. And it started with a couple runs earlier in that drive with Step. And that tells you that his role is expanding. Obviously, it's going to expand now with, with Vavai Malapai, yeah. you know, having a minor knee surgery and going to be out indeterminate amount but at least a couple weeks i would think yeah the interesting thing though is that we know we were told he had surgery on tuesday he was back out on wednesday with a sleeve on his left knee but looked like he was walking around pretty well all things considered so i wonder if it was just like a draining of the knee clay Hilton used the term cleaning it out so i wonder how long that is because i i thought it was going to be longer than maybe it looks like right now yeah and what he said was that the the swelling had just become a little bit too much uh you know he, he's been bothered by it since the byu game which then you question, like, why is this guy, why is your starting running back still covering punts and, yep. you know, on the punt return team as well? You know, if I understand using starters on uh, special teams, I have no problem with that. I think the best teams are able to do that. But also, if they're injured, why are they, why are you continuing to, to push the bounds with them in, in different roles instead of, hey, this guy's our starting running back. We should use him to run the ball, yep. we should use him to catch the ball. Those type of things, rather than we should use him to run after someone who's, you know, chase after a punt returner. You know, that doesn't make as much sense to me. No, yeah, not at all. It makes me wonder if his injury is similar to what Cam Smith dealt with last mm -hmm. year and what took him out of the Utah game. So I'm just curious about that. But now that you mentioned since Vi will be out, how do you expect Stephen Carr and and Steps' role to expand? And do you see the possibility of Keenan Kirsten coming on the field at all? You know, Graham Harrell a couple weeks ago said that, you know, they would like to find some opportunities for him. And he lit up. I had to jump in and say that because, like, <laughs> he lights up for certain guys. The first one we heard was Keenan Slovis. And then when someone asked about Keenan, I was like, why are you asking about Keenan? Like, he's not going to see the field. And then Graham Harrell just, like, took to it and lit up. So I'm really curious if he's one of the earmark guys in, in Harrell's circle. I think that he provides a different element. And yeah. I think it's a similar situation to Marquis Stepp. You know, at the beginning of the season, I I said, you know, I didn't think that Marquis Stepp needed a bunch more carries. Uh, there was opportunities to put him in certain situations I thought would be good. Not in the fourth quarter with his first carry coming on a fourth yeah. and one or something like that, yeah. which a lot of fans seem to be clamoring for. But um, I think that... Keenan Kristen is similar. You know, if you can find a way to work him in in certain packages to use his speed because he's different than the other two guys. You know, all four running backs on this roster, scholarship running backs, are much different from each other. So I think if you can use him in certain situations, I think that that's a you know you, it's a bonus. And I think that's something they haven't necessarily done a ton of with their offensive weapons. You know, move them around in certain situations. You know, why is Valus Jones not, you know, being a speed threat? There's there's like there's guys that they could do different things with that they haven't necessarily done it. It's kind of been a plug and play type of thing. Yeah. And you know, we heard that about the quarterbacks, you know, coming in this plug and play offense type of thing. Uh, but you know, if you have special dynamic players, then use them in special dynamic ways. But it seems like, hey, Michael Pittman's going to be on the left every time. Tyler Vaughn's going to be on the right pretty much every time. Amon Ra is going to be in the slot. 
And they talked about, well, we can move guys around. We can move them inside and outside. You haven't done it. Um, so it, w- it was kind of a question, you know, with the bracket coverage that Michael Pittman was getting this game. I asked Kerry Colbert, you know, how different is this offense versus the previous offense where you would kind of move guys around more? He said, well, we do motion and stuff. And I was like, no, not really. You don't really. It's not been a big element of this offense to move guys around, you know, to you know, most of the time it's to kind of check the formation. We're seeing if they're in man versus zone, maybe to move things a little bit, but not to move an individual to try to get him away from certain coverages or something and force force the defense to to readjust on the fly type of thing. You know, they now they can take what they get because you had three dynamic receivers. They're really good. You know, if you want to bracket Michael Pittman. Okay, well, we'll throw it down the middle to Amon Ross St. Brown. He'll have a 100-yard game. You also had one-on-one coverage with Tyler Vaughn. A lot of times on the other side, that's where you saw the touchdown. That's where you saw the big third down catch on the sideline. You know, And then they were able to work Pittman in, probably not as much as you would want to. You would try to get a little bit more. You know, I like the way they use the wide receiver screens and stuff. Yeah. Um, that was something that's a little bit, you know, they, they brought out a little bit more for this game. And that was a, a way to just get the ball in his hands. You know, because they're you're going to keep that safety over. Well, we'll throw it short and force your safeties to come up and make a tackle type of thing. Um, so I, I thought there were some good things there, but there's still some more that they could do. And and I think it's similar with with a guy like Keenan Kristen versus Step. You know, you can use them in individual packages. You can use them in certain ways, but will they do that? That's the so, question. So yeah. you might see that Keenan Kristen. You know, he might he might play in these couple games, and you know, from the looks of it, Vi doesn't look like he's going to be out for four weeks. You know, just the way he looked after on, on Wednesday. So if that's the case, then yeah, you throw Kristen in there. He's got four games that he can play. You know, you use him on special teams. You use him, you know, however you see fit. But maybe you have a special package or something. We'll see. You know, if it's similar to how Step was the first couple games. So hey, maybe you'll get one or two carries. And if you earn yourself more and more, and that's what Step's done. He he's done great. You know, the, the couple of runs. You know, not all, the 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 impressive one was the not going down and like seven guys. You know, having a shot at him that was, that was really impressive. Yeah, but the more important one was probably earlier in the game when they had a run that was called to the right, and you know Notre Dame is slanting hard to the right, and he cuts back. You know, it was great cutback, great vision. There was another run later in the game where he showed great vision. Um, you know, I think that's something that has really improved. You know, in a you know in a five week span, is him seeing the seeing the field a little bit uh, better, and that comes with experience. You know, yeah. you you start the game slows down a little bit, you start reading guys a little bit e- easier. Um, so I think that's what's kind of happened with him, and you know, he made the most of it th- this week uh, at Notre Dame. Yeah, which would be an argument for getting Keenan in earlier just to give him some some experience under his belt and say hey if if vi takes longer than you think i mean burn that red shirt try and get more experience for keenan if you can i just think getting him more involved is not a bad thing plus you never know with running backs and how yeah. much contact they take is will someone suffer a season in an injury you know Stephen carr you did not expect him to have to sit out the entire season but yeah you know you have a back injury those type things vi missed his you know first year they take a lot of contact, so sometimes you end up having a bad injury and you you have to sit out. So is it worth trying to redshirt now when it might end up coming anyways in the future? You know, if that's the kind of the gamble you, you take with redshirts. Yeah, and especially at the running back position where you're not really – they want to go to the next level as soon as possible just because their shelf life is not as long as other positions. But I So I had step on stock up as well, but I had Keenan Slovis. You kind of mentioned already, I thought this game was a good stepping stone for him and his progression. Um we mentioned coming into this game that he hadn't really practiced or played in a month and coming out of concussion, would he be kind of jumpy? What, how would he, would he bail a little bit early? You know, but 
thought he showed poise. Um, even when he tried to run it in for the, the goal line, he ran smack dab into a safety, wasn't scared <laughs> at all. Um, and, and I thought he had showed some good arm strength. I, it, you saw good progress from him and, and you saw you kind of see what Graham Harrell was talking about when he raised about Keaton so I thought it was a good stepping stone for him especially just on the road in that environment and given how he played against BYU he said that the difference for him was that he wasn't forcing throws he was getting better at and making his reads making those progressions there are things that he still needs to improve on um recognizing blitzes stuff like that getting the hot route out fast if he sees pressure coming stuff like that but I thought it was a good step in his progression as a true freshman quarterback yeah definitely uh I didn't even realize it had been a, a full month but yeah I, and I think you saw that early in the game you know there's times when he tried to leave the pocket a little too soon yeah um but in the second half he was fantastic you know he, he led the drives even when Notre Dame you know that final drive when they're rushing three and still getting pressure which is unacceptable for the offensive line um, but he was stepping up. You know, he took a couple hits. You know, even when he stepped up because he stayed, he kept his eyes down the field. You know, I was really impressed with some of those. And the throw to, to Tyler Vaughn's over the middle when he stepped up, I thought that was one of the, the best throws that we've seen from him so far. Check out film study. We point that one out as plug, well. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I thought that he showed a, a big jump because Notre Dame did a lot of drop eight. You know, yeah. because they want. And now I don't think Notre Dame's drop eight was quite the same as BYU yeah. and it was you know it was a little bit different and that's that's going to happen anytime you have different opponents but I thought that he showed progression where he would he threw the check downs you know he threw the short routes he he worked the field he worked the pocket until he found a guy like Eric Cromanhook Cromanhook gets five catches you know why because he was open in previous games too they're not really looking for him but if you're you know your farther options, you know your farther down the field options are not open. Then you come back to the tight end, and he was a reliable target. Give a lot of credit to Eric Cromwell as well. Yeah, he did a good job of just getting to grass. You know, mm, definitely um, just trying to keep, extend the play, and he proved valuable in in times when Keen was just looking for a guy, and he seemed to be the guy there. Yeah, you know that's what your tight end is supposed to be. It's supposed to be that safety blanket. You yeah, know, it's supposed to be the big guy. You can just throw the ball to him whenever you're in trouble. You know, you throw it high, throw it low. You got good hands. You're going to take care of it. They may not run for. 100 yards after it, but you know they'll get the catch and get you a couple yards. And that's what uh, Eric Cromanhook was in this game. He blocked really well, too. I thought he had a really good game, too. Mm-hmm. He could probably be on stock up. I was well. about to say, we'll, we'll put him in a last-minute stock up <laughs> for Eric Cromanhook. I had Slovis as well, but uh, one of the other ones I had was Greg Burns. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, he, he has done a phenomenal job with a rotating cast. <laughs> yeah, you emphasis know, on the rotation there. Every game, it's it's been someone different, it seems like. You know, you had Elijah Griffin go out again. Clay Helton said this week he has a bulging disc in his back. So yeah. when is he going to be back? And, you know, the way he likes to come up and support the run, how does that affect, you know, how he's able to tackle and different things like that? And how does that affect, you know, the the whether or not he re-injures it again, you know, yeah. when he does come back? You've had Greg Johnson go out with a shoulder injury, and that's a big, you know, a big red flag there. Yep. Because of the shoulder injuries he's had in the past, and just you could see as soon as you yeah, know, he it took was... the hit that he knew something was wrong, and he was calling for you know calling for someone to come help him out type of thing. It was one of those where you knew like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. And so he's had the shoulder injuries. You know, he separated his shoulder again. The sub subluxation, I think, is what. Uh, the the medical term is that, that Clay Helton likes to use. Um, he separated his shoulder, so when is that going to be healed? Who comes in after him? You know, Max Williams was suspended this game. He didn't. He was not dressed. He, Raylan Goforth, and Britton Allen, which all three of them I stocked down because those are guys that would have played roles in this game. Yeah. Whether on special teams or, um, you know, Max Williams being thrown in there in the mix instead, Kalana Makala, you know, who's a guy that no one knew anything about. 
we didn't know anything about until the Polynesian Bowl. And give a lot of credit to Blair Angulo, our uh, our mountain and Hawaiian uh, to Blair. analyst. He's like, you got to keep an eye on this guy. You know, I think he likes USC, and they've been talking to him a little bit. So we watched him in at the Polynesian Bowl practices and stuff. I was like, this guy's this guy's pretty good. You know, for an unknown, especially. You know, he's playing cornerback at that, and there's some talented receivers that were in the in that uh, All American game, and he was holding his own. He was he was playing really well. He's a guy that was playing safety in high school, so he comes to USC. He's got that versatility. He's playing nickel, and he comes in this game over Chase Williams. They decided to to put him in, and I thought he did a great job. You know, with what opportunities he had, he did miss a tackle on one of his first plays, but after that, you know, he 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 didn't do anything special, but he didn't do anything that hurt you. You know, I thought as a true freshman, he came in and, and did his job, and and that's something impressive there. And for a guy that went from Everyone's like, who? Who is this guy? You know, even Greg Burns apparently <laughs> said that, right? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, to be fair. Um, yeah, so I was asking Greg Burns. It was more about Chase Williams. I said, so how did, why did Kalano Makala uh, get the nod over Chase Williams at that nickel spot? And he goes, he kind of like reaches over to grab my shoulder and he's like, who? <laughs> he's like, who got the start? And, and I was like, Kalana. And then someone like, it was like, Makala. And he was like, well, <laughs> it's, it's always funny when coaches like have a certain like, identifier for players and you say like their first name and they don't know what you're talking about but yeah it was interesting but i'll get more into that in the stock down but yeah maybe maybe that's k-mac i don't know i don't know is his nickname I mean, well i mean like isaac taylor stewart we all say its but some people say it's it's just weird yeah you never know what what the identifier is until usually the players tell you unless it's kanai who <laughs> we asked him how to pronounce his name and he he's like oh whatever <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. Uh, so, but I had Greg Burns on there because of how much they've rotated and how the secondary just continues to perform. You know, even though yeah. Isaiah Polamalu is basically the only guy that's been healthy the entire season so far, um, and you know he's playing. He played ninety-two snaps this game. Wow. He's averaging over eighty snaps a game, so he's been important at the back end for them. But you know, they've they've been a rotating cast, and Greg Burns just continues that that secondary continues to produce. And that's something that we had earmarked coming into the season. That's a big concern. Big question mark, yeah. We were all looking at that position group. And if if anything, they've been a solid contributor to USC's defense. Um, so, like you said, props to him. Yeah, the cornerbacks have been phenomenal, too. You know, those three starters, you know, I'm, I'm just classifying them all as starters because Chris Steele's now started, I don't know Burn, how many Burn games. says that he feels like he has three there. Chris Steele's been terrific as a freshman. Yeah. You know, we haven't seen – he's given up a couple catches, but we haven't seen the, the type of – you know, head scratching plays that you saw from you know guys early in their five star guys early in their career, like you know Jack Jones or Iman Marshall or some of those guys uh, previously. He's just been very solid. Yeah. Um. And then Elijah Griffin has been great in run support and you know against the pass. And Isaac Taylor Stewart, you know, has just quietly produced for them. You yeah. know, he's he's barely he's not giving up a ton of catches when he does. Everything's in front of him. Not giving up any big plays. Runs down the running back on that long run, showing off the speed there. You know, he's he's the full package. You know, physically. Now, yeah. does he get the mentality and go get some interceptions or cross some fumbles? Yeah. yeah, you know that's that's the that's room for him still to grow in his career, and all those guys definitely still have a lot of room to grow. But they've been playing fantastic, without a doubt. Well, sticking on the secondary theme, let's just go into stock down. I had USC's secondary slash defensive health on stock down. <laughs> Coming into practice on Wednesday, you see their starting corners and their starting nickel not in pads. And so that's something that you're just like, ooh, not good if you're a USC fan. And then you have EA also out and Christian Rector not doing. Christian Rector looks okay. It kind of looked like vet rest, but just they're banged up there. Khalil Tate is someone that you want, a guy like OG who helps out so much in that run support. You want guys like that. And and we talked about this. Greg Johnson is kind of 
quietly solid as the nickel. He he has made some plays um, so far this season where you're like, oh, that's a solid contribution. And then talking to Greg Burns, he was kind of like, I have a contingency plan for everyone and no one, you know? So he's just trying to get everyone worked up. And I thought he had a good attitude about it. He was like, I'm treating everyone the Like, I always treat everyone the same. It's not like, oh, you're the starters and you're the backups. He's like, so they should be ready because I treat them all like starters. So it was an interesting conversation with him and his mindset approaching this, like, battered secondary I mean, it's just a battered defense to an extent. I yeah. mean, Jay Tefele finally kind of got healthy during the bye week from the cut on his hand that he suffered in the Stanford game, I think it was. Was um, it a cut? Yeah, he cut his hand, and it's, it had been still bothering him. Oh. And Chad K told me, actually, that, yeah, we're hoping to get him healed up because it's something that still is kind of affecting his play. You know, he's had to have it wrapped and stuff and just can't use his hands quite as effectively. Interesting. Um, so just – Obviously, at this point in the season, a lot of people get nicks and bangs and stuff. So that bye week came, and you're like, hey, they'll heal up. And they came out of the Notre Dame game getting beat up. So, you know, it, it's really tough. You know, I wouldn't, you know, if I was Chris Steele or Chase Williams, I might change my number for a couple of weeks. You know, I'd get a double digit number because if you're a single digit defender, you know, you got one, Pelia Naitiote, two, Elijah Griffin, um, six, six, Isaac Taylor Stewart, and four, who Elijah Griffin was four. Sure, you can count both if you want for your. <laughs> I was like, for I was like, wait, there was a four somewhere there, uh, and Greg Johnson number nine. So all the single digit guys, you know, four out of the six that are injured right now, and you talked about Greg Johnson. You know, he he's not just quietly been producing. I mean, he's got interceptions. True. He's got fumble. You know, he calls, calls the fumble at Utah. So he's had some big plays. But having him and Palier and Itiote potentially out, yeah. and those two guys both look like they're you know. Uh, Greg Johnson's already been ruled out, and Palia was know, doubtful. Clay Hilton said, "Yeah, so it doesn't look like he's going to play either." Those are two huge pieces to yep. containing Khalil Tate mm-hmm. because your nickel back is going to have to be able to tackle. So you know now Max Williams is is probably the guy that starts at nickel back if if they're healthy on the outsides. Um, he started obviously in place of Greg Johnson at Washington. And he's willing to come up and tackle. But Khalil Tate is a big dude, and he shrugs off tackles really well. So you want a bigger defender if you can. So Greg Johnson you know, is that, that type of guy in the nickelback spot. Maybe Chase Williams, you look at him, maybe just you know for this game, this game plan, maybe he should be playing safety for that reason. I don't know. But uh, you, know, you want him in there. And Palier obviously is a guy who can lay the lumber. You can you know hit somebody. You know, let them know that hey, you don't want to run so much, type of thing. John yeah. John Houston's going to tackle people, uh, but what? <laughs> you, you had a look on your face. I, I'm just going off of his performance against Notre Dame. I think that's even more concerning because you kind of have the yin and yang when you have Houston and EA. Like Houston will get there, but sometimes EA will bring the the hit, bring the the physicality to the linebacker position. But without EA around, I just don't know who's going to really. Uh, substitute that physicality and make the offense a little hesitant to to run by them. And the same thing with Greg Johnson. You saw yep. the saw the the Chris Fink uh, in and around attempt. I think it was from Notre Dame, and he laid the lumber out in the outside edge yep. near the the safety position. Isaiah Polamau and, and Talano Hufunga both have had some big hits this season, but losing those two guys, I think those are two key guys. Now, if Talanoa was out, that'd be he's probably the most important of that group. Yeah, because you can play him in the box and play him back. You know, he's going to be really important trying to contain Khalil Tate. You can use him as a spy, or you can use him, you know, rushing off the edge, which is something that USC did in this game a lot. Is bringing Talanoa Hufunga off the edge to try to help with those, you know, edge rushes. That was part of the reason why they brought him. Um, but you know it's going to be a very important task for everyone to just do their jobs. You know that that's 
it seems so simple, and it's one of the hardest things to do. You know, I asked Drake Jackson. I said, you know, yesterday, I said, what's been the hardest part? You know, what have you learned about yourself? Hey, I got to do my job. And he's one of the guys that, like, he's such a freak athletically that you want him to be, you know, hey, go do some more. Don't don't worry, you go do a little bit more. But when you do that, and guys like EA try to do a little too much, that's when you get guys out of your gaps, and that's when suddenly you know things open up. And if things open up for Khalil Tate. It can be a seventy-yard touchdown in, in in a second, you know. Yeah. And he can also throw the ball. You know, he's got the deep ball ability. You know, if he's the the question is always his accuracy. So he's a he's a dynamic weapon. And then you got to prepare for two quarterbacks because Grant Gunnell, the fr- true freshman, has been really good for them as well when Khalil Tate's been injured. So if you know if he goes down with the injury or something, you got to come in. You got a, a true pocket passer, and it's kind of the offense kind of morphs. So it's it's a it's a tough challenge for this defense this week to prepare for. And especially with the number of bodies that are not available to practice right now. Yeah, and that's why for USC's offense, this is the week. If you want to really air raid, like go for it. Show that fifty-five points that you wanted to to have each game. Or that's what Graham Harrell said preseason. So this is the time to do it. And Arizona's defense is statistically speaking, they're not that good. So they don't defend the pass very well. Yeah. So it, this could turn on into a shootout, which. Then the tempo becomes an, a question. You know, USC has said they want to go. Clay Helton said they want to use more tempo this week. It might end up being a 63-42 type of game. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, and that's it. Hey, you won by 21 points. Well, you gave up 42 points. Or, you, you know, you gave up 63 if it's the Arizona State tarmac game. Ooh. That was the score. But, but given how much how banged up USC's defense is, I think USC fans would be okay with coming out with a win if you have that much of a margin above it's just to me like this would be a game where you would probably where i would more than any other game so far would be a game where i'd slow it down and the irony is that usc wants to go tempo this game yeah exactly but because i want to give my defense rest because i want my starters to play as much as they can yeah you know and the more tempo the more backups and reserves end up playing and the more you need them to play because uh, you know you don't want a defensive line a defensive tackle playing 90 snaps or something um but this is the game where, like, I feel if I'm coaching USC, I go, I've got more athletes, I've got better talent. Let's slow the game down. Let's make sure we make our plays. But they, and you know, you can put their defense in some different situations with using tempo at times. But I just don't know that I would want to go full out tempo the whole time. When there's other games where I would have been like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because if if you're going tempo and not successful at it, then you're putting your defense on the field over and over again. And that's just the worst position you want to put them in, given what we know about this defense coming into this game. Which they got confidence. They have confidence that they're not going to be going three and out over and over against Arizona. So that's part of the reason, probably, why they're thinking that. Yeah. But also, you know, a seven play, 60 yard drive in a minute and a half is still not that much rest for the defense. Yep. Even if you're scoring a touchdown on it, so it, it's kind of it's a give and take, and we'll see. Maybe the the game plan morphs because we saw that against Notre Dame, the game plan morphed from you know check with me, let's see what they're doing, and that's one of the things I think has been an adjustment for Graham Harrell um, and in his offensive play calling is that teams are changing what they do a lot more than necessarily what what they did in North Texas, which yeah. I asked him about. It's like has it been that much different as far as the game planning? what teams have shown on tape previously versus what they show in a game. And he said later in the North Texas season last year, he said teams started doing that more just because they had some guys that were unique and you know you had to devise specific plans to stop certain people, like Mason Fine was doing really well as a quarterback. I think that's the case always with USC, and it's kind of been 
a common mantra that we've heard from from players and coaches is like, well, and and then Coach Clay Helton's even told the players like, hey, whatever you see on film, just expect something different. Yeah. To an extent, um, because it, because teams are trying to put new stuff in just for USC because USC has dynamic players, uh, but it all ends up you all end up reverting back to what you do a lot. You know, especially the more plays you run and stuff like that. So maybe that's part of the reason why they want to go tempo so you can get more plays. There's a lot of reason why you could do it, reason why you couldn't do it. This would be a week why I would probably slow it down a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see for sure. Uh, but just to wrap up the whole secondary thought, I know you talked about this in Stock Up, but just I had stock down for Max Williams. Um, and i not necessarily sure if Raylan Goforth would have been the guy to go for EA, given that uh, Kanai went in, but... As a freshman, these are the moments that you come here for. You want to make your mark. You want to have a good impression from the start. And this could have been another opportunity for Max Williams to come in and show what he offers this team. And if you're suspended for a team rule violation, you can't do that. And so, you know, that puts a bad taste in coaches' mouths. Maybe they don't want to play you if you're not taking care of business outside of the field. So I just thought that for them they need to step up in that sense and, and be a contributor so that if something if their team needs them like they did on Saturday, they're ready to, to contribute. Yeah, and you know it's a very small thing that Britton Allen, all three of these guys were not dressed. The only other player on the sideline not dressed was were Jordan Iacefa and Andrew Voorhees. So there was no one else that I saw on the sideline that was not dressed. So these three guys came on the trip assuming that they were going to play. I don't think you would not dress them, bring a true freshman yeah. to not dress them. So for whatever reason, they were not dressed. But a guy like Britton Allen, like it, it may seem like, okay, well, what is he doing? You know, What is he really contributing as far as – but he's on special teams. So the guys that come in for him are guys like Drake London you know, or you know, Chase Williams comes in and has to play extra. You know, Pali and Itiote was on kickoffs this game. You know, who exactly was he in for? Well, Raylan Goforth. And do you not think those extra plays are impacting, you know, you know, whether he's tired or not, whether he gets bent back, you know, the, those small things, it's not a direct contributor, but you're at, you're just adding extra plays on your starters that you shouldn't have to do if your players are taking care of everything. Yeah. Uh, else so those guys you know that, those are opportunities to create a fumble or do something where you stand out and now you've worked your way into more opportunities Raylan Goforth's a guy that maybe he gets opportunities in that game you know maybe maybe that leads him in or you know they see you give him a couple snaps and he does pretty well so now his workload increases this week now the question is still this week is well do they want to play him he's more of the Mike linebacker you know is he the guy you know he's just a backup to the the two spots now instead of Maybe he did something to to prove himself to yeah. to work his way up. It's well, just we, kind of a missed opportunity for those guys. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I also had Chase Williams on stock down just because talking to Greg Burns about hey, if you you see uh, Greg Johnson go down and Max Williams not available, Kalana comes in, and so he was talking about how you know coming into the game, I thought that we were giving Chase too many responsibilities, so they decided to put him just to safety those two safety positions we're going to keep him there take nickel away from his plate essentially so but we did see chase for two plays at nickel and then three plays first drive of the game too it's like if you're gonna say that why is he playing why is greg johnson come out and you put him in and, and he talked about it he said it was really a, a question of whether i was going to stick to my guns because i had said that before the game and then i'm in this position right away where i have to decide what i'm going to do with chase and he said so i stuck with my guns and put kalana and he was like i trusted him in kalana and so he stuck with it but i i don't doubt 
Burns based on what we've seen from his players so far this season, but I just felt like given the experience that Chase has, wouldn't you want to put him in in that specific scenario? But it also makes me wonder how much did the coaches lose confidence in Chase in the UW game? That 89-yard run, that was Chase Williams right there. Is that something that weighs into it? I don't know, but I'm just curious about that whole progression with Chase. And and maybe he hasn't practiced at Nickelback for the last two weeks. Sure, that too. We don't know if that's the case, but he went in. At the beginning of the game at Nickelback. So, you know, USC, Notre Dame gets in a first and 20 situation on their first drive after a penalty, and Greg Johnson comes out. Chase Williams goes in for the final three plays of the drive. Why is he in then if you're not going to play him in that same spot later? It makes no sense. So, on my stock down, I had tell the truth Mondays. You know, they, they champion that on Mondays they go watch the film and we're really harsh on the kids. And, you know, it's tell the truth Mondays. We tell the positive, we tell the negative. That doesn't seem to carry over the rest of the week for some reason. You know, I just don't feel like we're getting the truth. It, like that, that, that seems to me like we're not hearing the truth from Greg Burns about why a guy would play a position early in the game and then not play it later in the game. If he's not been practicing there at all, I understand that. But then why does he go in in that spot early? If, if, that, if that was his explanation and Chase Williams didn't play those three plays early in the game, I, I perfectly understand. I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. There's other things that we keep hearing from the coaches like, that's just not consistent with what we're seeing on the field. You know, Kerry Colbert told me, yeah, you know, we, we've been motioning. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not motion. You, you barely motion compared to last year. You're probably at a tenth of the motions that you did last year. So you know, there's different things you use motion for. I wasn't necessarily like asking for a game plan of when you want to use motion and not. It's like, s- stop just talking around things. Just tell, tell the truth or ask for the next question. No, it's, no it's, comment. Next question. It's the coach double speak that we talked about a couple of episodes earlier. Yeah, it's just it, it's so there's the tell the truth Mondays, and then the rest of the week it seems like eh, we'll see. We'll see Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> and the other thing about that is Clay was like, I thought we had a really great practice on Monday. I was like, Mondays are walkthroughs. Like, how do you have a really great walkthrough? He he said it was the best Monday practice they've had. So I don't know. I just how you compare them all. I'm just curious all. what that entails. That's I, I guess my snarky comment of the pod. What else do you have on Stockdown? Uh, I've also got John Houston Jr. Yeah. Uh, you know they needed somebody to step up. Taylor Mays went over this you know in great depth on our Tunnel Vision on Sunday. Uh, thanks to him for stopping by. If you guys haven't watched that one, you know he he presents a a lot different element and a different look at it. So you should check that out. Uh, looking back at the Notre Dame game, but they needed someone to step up with all the injuries that they had. And and John Houston had a couple opportunities to make tackles for a two- or three-yard gain, and it turned into an 11- or 12-yard gain. Now, he's a guy that's been out there all season. He's a guy that, you know, is is taking the wear and tear. There was a play earlier in the game, which I think was the long run. Like, he got rolled up on in a weird way, and his knee just bent in a weird way, and I was like, that didn't look right. But he's the guy that's out there, whether or not he's playing with injuries, because at this point everyone's playing with nicks and bumps and stuff. You got to make the plays. Yeah, and he didn't do it. They needed their senior captain to to step up and make some plays to get off the field because that drive was was the game. You know, because like we said, we thought the offense, the way they were rolling, they would go down and score again, like they did. Uh, but it, so if you can force a field goal when they score that next touchdown, you're ahead. But they couldn't. They couldn't get off the field. Those those third and longs, you know, killed them. Ian Book's legs killed them. You know, they did some different things. I thought Notre Dame was did a really good job of keeping certain guys on the field with their substitution patterns. Um, so, you know, give them credit to an extent, but you know, you need your senior captains to step up and make plays. Yeah, without a doubt. In the same vein, I had tackling on Stockdown. I thought there were just moments where 
they were in the right position. They could have made a, a critical stop, and then they just get blown by, or they miss the tackle. And that's just something that we've seen all season. But it hurts their defense. It hurts their defense, and it and it, it loses games for them, ultimately, when you look at that last drive. So I had tackling on stock down. I also had uh, USC's offensive line on stock down. I thought there were times where they could have been more consistent, um, gotten the pressure off of Keaton a little bit. And so, like we mentioned earlier, when USC's passing game opened up, it was because they were getting consistent in their run game. They were opening mm-hmm. things up where those safeties have to respect the run game. So I think to make everyone's life easier on the on the offense, their offensive line needs to be consistent, especially when you're not getting – you're in max protect and you're getting three guys coming at you. Like, you have to make those plays. So Yeah, on the final, final offensive drive, they gave up a sack, which is only like a two-yard loss or three-yard loss, but it eats into the time. And it was a max protect with five offensive linemen, a tight end, and a running back, and they gave up a sack to a three-man rush. Like Those things can't happen. Those are small plays that don't necessarily stand out and be like, that lost you the game. But those are things that hurt you, you know. and you, you can't have those type of losses. Um, looking on the other side of the ball, I had Marlon Tui-Pelotu and, and the interior run defense. You know, this is the first time that USC has been gashed, you know, has given up runs up the middle. Obviously, there was the long run um, against Washington. That's probably the, the biggest play, you know, of that game. But the the interior run defense has been really, really good this season, has been dominant at times. And Marlon Tuipolotu dealt with a ton of double teams in this game. And that's part of the reason, and I think he wore down because the double teams, he was taking on a lot of action. So, which is why I'm not just putting him on stock down. I think the, the run defense as a whole, and I think other guys have to step up. If he's getting double teamed, then that means a guy like John Houston has to step in the hole. That means Jay Tefele has to do a better job. You know, all the defensive line has to work together. So if one guy's getting that double team, it can't just completely eliminate your run defense being good. Um, and I think that... You know he's going to have to battle that a lot the rest of the season. If I watch that Notre Dame tape, I say we got to double team that guy, and then we'll we'll face off with someone else. Yeah, you know because he's been a beast. He and yeah. Jay Tafeli both have been beasts, but in the run defense, he's been phenomenal. Anytime he's facing one guy, so he got pushed back some of the some of the times in this game, which has been you know very uncommon so far this season. And usually it was a double team pushing him back. Uh, but just the interior run defense really hurt USC. Obviously, you know Tony Jones Jr. ran for a ton of yards um, and some some big gains too, some gash gains, explosive plays, not just you know three and four yards a play. Yeah, I forgot to mention this, but I had Ben Griffiths on stock up um, just because he actually punted well. But then I had USC special teams on stock down. They couldn't find the ball. They couldn't down the ball when Ben Griffiths is actually punting well. Those were fantastic punts, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, four of them inside the ten yard line or around the ten yard line where they should be. You got you got to stop him from going to the end zone. When you practice special teams as much as you do, when you have John Baxter, the special teams guru, on your coaching staff, you have to be able to do simple things like that. When your punter is actually producing, so I had to put them on stock down. Give give credit to Chase McGrath, who again made all his field true. goals. True, very continues true. to do that. But on the other side of special teams, you should have given up a kickoff return for a touchdown. A guy just drops the ball basically. Um, and that was one missed tackle, and suddenly he was gone because a couple guys got out of their lanes. So that's a discipline thing there. Um, otherwise, the special teams was kind of neutral to an extent. Oh, but, but they could have. They were neutral. They were kind of neutral. Yeah, they were stock neutral. I said otherwise. We're talking about all the bad things okay, they did. I just had to give some love to stock no, neutral, you don't. especially there was when no you... stock there. Oh my god, just go with it. No, I'm not going with it. Uh, but you know, the biggest thing was that 30 or 40 yards that you lose. 
uh, or maybe more than that, that you lose from not being able to down those punts. Yeah, it matters. It matters. And I think that leads us into the biggest knockdown of all, officiating Pac-12 refs. Yeah, I was just going to note it at the end. I was just going to be like, and again, the Pac-12 refs were terrible. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows. I don't think we have to really get into this. All right, so this is, since we'll just bleed this in to hurt it, but this was a hurt it from earlier the season. We'll just transfer. Yeah. We're now in hurt it on the sideline. I heard a, a USC coach told me, you know, this was before the Notre Dame game, not leading up to the Notre Dame game. This is a, a little while back, but told me we were talking about how bad the Pac-12 refs are. And he said, it's, it's amazing when we go to South Bend and the Pac-12 refs are there, it seems like they want to make sure that there's no, um, there's no specter of bias at all. Like, there's nothing, we're not biased, we're not biased. And it ends up, the calls end up going against USC because they just want to really want to be like, no, we're, we're, we're just completely not biased at all for, for our conference. And then the ACC officials come to USC when, they, when Notre Dame plays at USC and they're like, yeah, we'll help out Notre Dame, whatever. This is our conference. Why would we care if we screw another conference? Now, not like it's just super blatant or anything. It's just like the the close calls seem to go against them. Now, that's probably partly coaches just, you know, coaches always feel like coaches' calls go against them. Sure. The consistency issue is the biggest thing I have with the Pac-12 refs. Yeah. How do you go from USC-Utah, Michael Mothershed-led crew, same head referee, and you call, I think it's 23 penalties for like 230 or 40 yards or something, and like every single call, you know, every single play seems like it has a penalty on it. And there's a lot of ticky tack ones. There's guys like everything seems like you throw a guy down, and there's no consistency even in that game. You know, where Drake Jackson gets a, you know, penalty for picking a guy up and slamming him, and then the same thing happens to Valus, but it's not a penalty. Yeah. Um. So how do you go from that game to USC Notre Dame, a Michael Mothershed led crew, same head referee, and there's basically no calls at all. There's just no consistency there from one game to the next or even in game. And that's the biggest issue with Pac 12 refs. In baseball, what they always say, you know, the, the coaches will always tell you, I don't care if the, the zone is tight, I don't care if it's wide, I just care if it's the same. You don't want it to morph and suddenly in the seventh inning, like the zone just widens out and you go, what, what, where did this come from? Yeah. So for my heard it, I have to provide some context. It was when Chris Trevino was on the show. We talked about the turnover sword and how we feel about the the turnover apparatus apparati that <laughs> USC has had over the years. And Chris had mentioned, well, it looks like the sword is cheap. And I had kind of been like, yeah, it kind of does. So I had someone come up to me on the sideline and actually give me the origin of where the sword was from. So thanks to who told me this, who listens to the pod, apparently, it's actually the band's practice sword so it's the real sword and so apparently usc's team had come up to the band like right before the first game was like hey we want a turnover sword let's get a sword and they were like you can't just get a sword like right away they were like you like go to a blacksmith and you have to like get it and so they're like but we want a sword and they're like okay well you can use our practice sword if you want it and they're like okay this is me adding the the conversation but you get the gist um so it's actually a real legit sword so chris Trino is wrong it's not cheap it's actually pretty well done you know but how much how expensive is that sword that they're going to eventually get versus the cost of a mini pony that's the real question <laughs> True. True. We, we want the turnover mini pony we don't want turn to make over that. mini pony turn over mini pony yeah. little, little traveler Traveler, it'll be great. Turnover traveler, ooh, I like it. We said that on the last spot. I know, but a little turnover traveler. You gotta add a little, a little, adds a little spice. No <laughs> little, pun intended. Little TT, <laughs> little TT. Love it. What else do you have on heard it? Uh, going back to the down punts and them not being able to down the punts. 
The the last one actually it ended up being the last one, the fourth one that was inside the red zone. Um, when the players were coming off, and this one was, I believe this was the one that Isaiah Polamau tried to tip back into play, and Jaden Williams for one just like stares at it like. What do I what do I do with that? Is that do I just leave it there? Or do I am I supposed to do something? It just didn't seem like he had the full grasp that hey go grab the ball and just stop it from moving. Uh, so it ends up rolling into the end zone when they're coming off the field. When that unit is coming off the field, one of the assistants it wasn't John Baxter. John Baxter is yelling catch the ball, catch the ball over and over. One of the assistants is yelling catch the effing ball, catch the yell screaming at them. And so I'm like I don't know ten yards away and I just hear catch the ball, catch the and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good idea. Somebody should somebody should probably do that. Going back to tempo on the defensive side. Okay. I've got that final drive. You know, Notre Dame chews up the clock, seven minutes, couple big third down. Towards the end of the drive, you know, USC was not able to to rotate the way they wanted to on that drive. Notre Dame did a great job of keeping certain guys on. When Drake Jackson came out of the game, he didn't come back in on that drive. Now he was getting his thigh worked on, on the side. He ended up coming back for the PAT, so it's not like it was a lingering issue, but you know, he, he was not available for part of it because even when they did uh, make an adjustment, uh, when they had the penalty on Notre Dame, when they did bring in some new guys, Marlon Tuipelotu ends up playing the first nine snaps in a row. Now, you don't want your defense tackles playing nine snaps in a row and staying on the field, but that's you know, what Notre Dame was doing and keeping them on the field. USC got two subs on that entire drive. They got a sub after the first first down that, that Notre Dame picked up, and then they got a sub on the penalty. After the, they didn't get any subs in between, so those guys are playing, you know, six, seven, eight snaps in a row at times during that drive because it was a thirteen play drive and they only had two subs. So a guy like, uh, you know, Brandon Peely plays eleven snaps in a row. So at the end of the in the drive when you know they run that lead draw, how fresh is he to get off of a you know a block there? And you know you end up having uh, Caleb Tremblay playing the last nine snaps. Of, of the drive you know you have some of your backups Connor Murphy was in there for a while you want to get your starters back in hey you want to get Marlon Tuipelotu back in because he didn't play the final I think five or six snaps well Chad Kay is trying he, he wants to get Marlon back in Marlon in particular was a guy he's like trying to get him back in he's looking for a spot you could just see the frustration on his face when a run would be and Notre Dame did a great job of this of running towards their sideline to make sure that USC couldn't sub in and going tempo when they did go opposite uh, of their sideline uh, because and now it wasn't like they just they were running clock but they also going tempo they would get up to the line and force USC not to be able to sub especially when they got inside the twenty or twenty you know inside the twenty five yard line because that's a long way to run for a defense tackle to get the other guy off the field because we saw a couple of times. Where USC did not do that, they, you know, they had a couple of legal participation calls because they couldn't sub out quick enough. Um, they were they were not doing a great job of reading when Notre Dame was subbing to be able to get their subs in exactly. But on this drive in particular, Notre Dame kept their guys on the field. They didn't sub a bunch so that USC wasn't able to sub. And just seeing the frustration on a guy like Chad Case's face and kind of the dismay, it's like I can't get my best guy back in the game, you know. And that makes you wonder. Yeah, I was about to jump in. I would have called a timeout somewhere in that drive. It's I especially before the third and ten, the in book draw. Like they're gassed at that point, and you have three timeouts. I thought that a timeout would have been a good call there too. I mean, third and ten. You know, this that's the twelfth play of the drive, so they've already run eleven plays. Uh, you did have a little bit of breather with the penalty. You know, it's not a big breather, but eh. you, you get to catch your breath to an extent during the penalty call and everything, uh, which was three plays earlier 
But you know, Clay Helton like was constantly peeking up. I just I saw him on the sideline, constantly peeking up to the to the clock to see how much time was left, and you just see it tick, 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 just slowly rolling away. And it was interesting because Notre Dame started that drive with like actually going tempo and going you know with some speed on it because that worked earlier in the game. Their offense hadn't been doing a ton in the second half. Um, and then they, they would pick up first down and slow it down a little bit. Pick up first and slow it down a little bit. Um, so I, I thought a timeout probably would have been a good call right there. And that's hard to, you know, that's a a feel thing for a head coach. That's a hard thing to, to know. You can't, you know, is your position coach going to co- come to you and say, like, Coach, we've got to get timeout here. I'm like, well, we only get three. We're down by this many points. If, we, if they score a touchdown, we're down by two scores. We need those timeouts. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but – on the third and ten, if there were, we're going to call a timeout, the third and ten would have been a perfect time. Yeah, because if you get off the field there, you force the field goal, you're down by six. You need to score a touchdown. And but given how USC's offense was playing, they hadn't been stopped in the second half. Yeah, I think at that point you have to prioritize clock, the time left on the clock, and giving your defense a shot. Yeah, and you would have had more time on the clock then because they get the ball back. What I think what three thirty to score and need two scores. So. Yeah. You know, if they get off the field in the third and ten, that takes away a couple extra plays. So you, maybe you get the ball back with five minutes, four minute, four and a half minutes, I think it was, and you need a touchdown. But that that third and ten play ended up being the play of the game. You know, it ultimately decided the game, in my opinion, because it was an, a great opportunity for USC to get off the field. You force the field goal. Your offense is going to go down and score instead. You give up it the first down with Ian Book's legs just doing the damage against you. Which then makes you think about Khalil Tate. He's the guy with the legs. So it'll be interesting to see for sure. One more heard it that I have is uh, listening to Trojans Live and Clay Helton was talking about what he did during Monday's practice or Monday's film session, somewhere in there. But he said he had all the players, you know, he said anybody who played in that Rose Bowl game against Penn State, you know, was on the team, stand up. So they all stand up looking around like, okay, what does this have to do with coach? What's going on? He said, do you guys remember what our record was through six games? And their record at that time was three and three. His point was trying to say that, hey, we can go on a run, you know, just like that year, we were three and three, and we made a run. Now, there's some differences, obviously. Well, I would just say one of them is, was Sam Darnold in the room? Was number 14. <laughs> yeah, but you look at it and you say, well, Sam Darnold had, what, two starts at that point? Keaton Slovis has two starts at this point. So you can make some comparisons there. You know, both of them were guys that were not highly touted coming out of of, uh, of high school. You know, they, they think a lot of Keaton Slovis, so maybe they think he's the next Sam Darnold. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Now, he doesn't have the same Darnold magic creating with his legs that, that Darnold did, but uh, there are some comparisons there. The biggest thing for me, though, which is why a lot of people said that. They said, oh, it was Sam Darnold when I tweeted this out, but the biggest thing for me is they were coming off a two-game win streak with Sam Darnold. He had lost his first start. They won two games. Now you're coming off a two-game losing streak. Now the schedule does get easier, but it's not as easy as it was previously. You know than it was a couple years ago during that season. You know I thought that you know it was straight downhill on that one. But this one you still have Oregon on the schedule. Arizona State, Cal are decent uh, or decent to good, and you know the Arizona team can put up a bunch of points too as well if they can play any defense at all. So I think it's a much more challenging second half of the schedule. It's it's much easier than their first half of the schedule this season. Sure. But it's a more challenging second half than it was that year. So I think there's some differences there. But I thought it was interesting that that's the point that he made to the team. You know, he's still trying to sell them on, you know, making it to the Pac-12 championship and making it to the Rose Bowl. You know, that team didn't make it to the Pac-12 championship, but ended up did make it to the Rose Bowl. So uh, there's still stuff to play for. 
I know it's overkill when they say it, and like that's the immediate thing that they think after a loss to Notre Dame. Immediate thing you think after a loss to BYU. Immediate thing you think after a loss to – we don't want to hear that every time. If I'm the team, I don't want to hear that every time. I want to hear fire and brimstone every once in a while. Again, this goes back to mine and yours preaching of change things up every once in a while. Yeah. Um, but it's been a consistent message. We still have our goals ahead of us to win the Pac-12 championship, make it to the Rose Bowl. If your national championship is not one of your goals, then you're fine. Your goals are still in front of you. Now, that's perfect. This is what I had in my heart, too. But I phrased it as Clay putting himself in the corner. Because what happens if you come Nobody out... Nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> what happens if you come out and drop a game to... Arizona. What what's the motto now? We still kind of sort of maybe control our destiny. Like I don't I don't know why the why the goalposts are being moved and why the bar is being lowered. I think it should matter no matter what. I don't I don't know I'm going with this, but I'm just ranting at this point. But <laughs> I'm really curious because Clay's putting himself in a corner. Once you start comparing to the Rose Bowl year, you got to deliver on that. And I don't know if they can. And and to they, be fair, hey, does this team have the talent to go to the Rose Bowl and win a Rose Bowl again? Sure. There's the talent. Can you get over that hump to and, beat quality teams? And that's my big question is, is this enough experience for this team heading into the second half where they have made a stride? They have made that corner. They've turned that corner that USC's coaches keep saying that they need to do. Is having Keenan Slovis have enough experience under his belt that turning point? I don't know. And this team's talented enough. We've seen it. Because like, I'm just calling an audible right now. We're moving on from heard it. We're not going to do agree to disagree. I'm just going to have two questions. And we're going to go into questions because we're running long already. But because I was going to ask you, do you think this team should at least be 5-1 and one at this point in the season based on how we've seen the games play out? Uh, they definitely could be. I know. They could be 6-0. and oh. Yeah. If JT Daniels was still the quarterback, they might be. I mean, I, I, I think Keaton played great in the Notre Dame game. This is the first game where I was like, yeah, JT Daniels would – at best, had played like Keaton did. And now Keaton took a couple sacks and stuff. But, you know, the, the other games, I was like, well, if they had JT, if they had their starting quarterback, you know, that game might have been a lot different type of thing. Whereas this one, I was just like, that's a complete one-for-one one changeover there. He played great in that game. Um, so if he continues to progress, obviously that's something. Now, I asked Clay Helton this week on the conference call because he's continued to say what has ailed them is fundamentals and technique. Fundamentals and technique. You know those things that you work on during fall camp and spring camp and every other time? Uh, but that's continued to be the issue. That's been something he's brought up after multiple games. So I asked him, you know, how do you you know, make adjustments? How do you change that at this point in the season? And he said, well, we got young players, and we expect them to really come on. Now, you've got young players every year, uh, but you also have some veteran players that need to step up and do a little bit more as well. So you know, it's going to take – the entire team taking a step forward, including the coaching staff. Now, again, plenty of talent. I think there's coaching, some coaching talent there as well uh, that they can progress. As, and you know, I just think that there's an opportunity there, but the track record doesn't lend me to believe that. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. Yeah, agreed. But I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> where do you think this team goes? How do you think the rest of the season season plays out? I could easily see them going five and one in the second half. Now is that enough? Uh, that's a question mark. You know, because you're eight and four, does that get you in the Pac-12 championship? Does that get you in the Rose Bowl? You know, depend on who they win or lose to. Um, you know, I, I think they'll go four and two. I think that's what'll happen. You know, they'll they'll lose one game and you just be like, oh my god, how'd they lose that game? Yeah. But then they'll they'll probably play really well against Oregon or something. I, 
it, this team, you know, I'm terrible at predictions so far this season. Though I did get, I did got this one right. I was right on with this one. I said 28-24, Notre Dame will win. So I had a four you point were close. margin. Four point margin for a game that was a ten and a half point spread. Okay. So, okay. Okay. So I was on on this one, but I'm generally terrible at predictions, and this team is just so inconsistent. Yeah. When you know that there's talent, but they just can't put it together, that makes it so hard to predict. Before we move on to questions, we got to give a shout out to the Notre Dame fans. They're a smart crew. I had a lot of people come up to me like, hey, I was prepping for the USC and I saw your show. And some security guard was like, excuse me, ma'am. And I was like, oh, gosh, what do I do now? He's like, do you have a podcast? And I was like, I, I, I do, sir. I do. And he's like, love your work. And I was like, thank you. It was, it was really fun. Uh, not just the Notre Dame fans, but... So many people from you know, when I was getting on the flight to when I went to a meetup in Chicago to meet, see some friends, like just everywhere. It seemed like everywhere kind of went that there was someone that recognized, uh, you know, the show. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. Thank you yeah. guys for tuning into Tunnel Vision, Film Study, all the different things that we do. Uh, we really appreciate you guys and you know, love it when you guys come up and say hello to us. It's always really fun knowing like, oh, there's actually people on the other end of this. <laughs> you know, Because sometimes you just do it week in and week out and you're like, it's in the ether. But you're like, oh, a face. That's cool. And especially when it's you know names that we recognize and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I notice people's like handles and stuff like that. So if you're regular, I, I notice you. <laughs> uh, but let's get into questions. First up. It's an interesting one. It's an email from Bobby, and the subject line said, let's talk about reality. So he said, I understand that your livelihood is USC football, and you'll always be there to do what you're being paid for. However, I feel that there's a segment of alumni and fans not being accounted for. I'm extremely interested in being a guest on the Family Feud pod. I certainly feel like being the black sheep of this dysfunctional family. This will be the first time in my life that I cannot root for the Trojans against the Irish. The three-headed monster known as the Swan Hellpat is the worst mythical word (laughs) in the entire world, and we're still suffering i'm still jealous of that school across town that had the fortitude and intelligence to fire their head coach mid-season why can't i explain my views especially since i did not see anyone from uscfootball.com i searched in the founders room at the galen center during the coaches tour five months after beating penn state and hearing more on number three taking credit for the victory with eight of his staff and being so excited that his staff had another season of cohesion and promising great things are coming very quickly I will have my hat on backwards with the coolest new Tommy Bahama shirt only available in Maui. I had to go so I couldn't see game number one. Another new mythical word meaning great fashion sense. I introduce Ryan Spratweb <laughs> and I await your response. Thank you in advance for your consideration. <laughs> I don't know what to take away from this. I mean, there's a lot to take away from this and to not take away from this. I mean, the having Chris Trevino on was, was a struggle enough, so I don't think we're going to be able to have any... <laughs> You know, a true guest come on. Uh, but you can send us voicemails and stuff. Sure, you know, Just, yeah, just note that they're for the Family Feud podcast. Yeah, if you guys want to call us and leave us voicemail personally, you can call 424-254-9141. Yeah, and we were not in the founder's room because I don't even know what the, the coach's tour necessarily is. You know, we see the coaches at different events, so we may have seen them the week before. Who knows? Um, it's... It's interesting that you just you're needing to come up with words to describe them. That I think that tells you enough about this group and what has been done uh, in the past. Well, Pat Hayden's gone, Lynn Swan's gone. Will Clay Helton stick around? That's good. that's the big question. So you know this is not the Hydra necessarily, where you got to cut off the head to to kill the rest of the snake. You know because then another head pops up. Um, so we'll see where this goes from here. It's like I said, like you said, it's a it's a lot to take away from this message to try to figure out. Um, I guess the point I think the point he was trying to make was that 
he's frustrated. He doesn't feel like they're being spoken for to an extent. Like there's On certain, this pod there's or certain, in, in general? There's a segment of alumni and fans not being accounted for, he said. We know you're frustrated. We should point out that Keely is an alum. Yes, I am. I went to USC as well. Thanks for the email, Bobby. <laughs> uh, let's move on to an email from Lewis. Now, Lewis packed this email full with questions, so we'll be here for a while. <laughs> but we love him because he says, hey, guys, first off, really love the show. With respect to Dan and Coach Hyde, your show is the one I look forward to most during my week. <laughs> Yeah, that deserves an air horn for sure. Uh, So he says, some questions. First off, on offense, even if this is not a true air raid system, are Graham Harrell and the offensive coaches making the other team defend every blade of grass in the field horizontally and vertically? And to that end, if the defense is sitting on the wide receiver's routes, are we getting enough production out of the tight end slash H-backs and the running back? So I think that this past game that we saw a lot more of USC going wide, going deep, doing different things to to use all the blades of grass on the on the field. I thought that there was a much different game plan this week uh, against Notre Dame, and I think that maybe you'll start seeing a little bit more of that. I like the screens and stuff. You know, Lewis also asked, when are we going to see more draws and screens? It seems like at this point in the season there should be more wrinkles to the offense to keep opposing defenses honest. And I think that's something you started to see in this Notre Dame game. You know, the the uh, toss pitch to Stephen Carr was you know something because Notre Dame was slanting hard on their on USC's run alignments and stuff. So where the running back was lining up. So I, I think that you're going to see some more wrinkles and stuff like that. Um, the question is. How basic is it, and how often do you need to add wrinkles? You know, that's the simplistic offense, and you know, you have several options on different routes. So, you know, or is everyone on the same page? Those type things. I think they're still learning each other and learning the system to an extent, especially when you cycled through quarterbacks. So, I think that they've done some things differently this past week against Notre Dame that leads me to believe that you're going to continue to see maybe a little bit different wrinkles. I like the way they use the screens to to widen the field against Notre Dame, especially it makes some of those, you know, defensive ends make them, you know, instead of pass rushing, make them to try to come out and, you know, hesitate for a second. Yeah, so I think we're seeing just some some different wrinkles that they can use. We'll see how much it continues this week against uh, Arizona. He also says with the return of a healthy Keaton Slovis and having two healthy quarterbacks, do you see more RPO and quarterback keeps? Not if Slovis is in there. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, maybe you do it to keep a defense honest, and that's fine, but you don't want him taking a ton of hits. Uh, you know, I think Matt Fink's legs create a different element, uh, so that's why they were using that. And maybe you'll see some specific plays, like the run that Matt Fink had on the goal line that was put in at halftime of the Utah game. You know, those type things might, you know, like, might bring up and say, okay, well, let's go with this and Keaton Slovis can get in a yard or two yards or three yards to get in the end zone, yeah, you might see those type of things, but I don't think it's going to be a consistent element of the offense. Then he has defensive questions as well. First off, he says, if only for self-preservation, do you think that Clancy and Clay will ever come to the realization that the defense truly needs to be more simplistic, particularly on run fits? It has been a hallmark of Clancy's defense over the years that we always miss a critical plug resulting in long run plays. Well, I don't think you would suddenly be like, oh gosh, we got to make it simplistic now to save our job. No, no, you're just going to run your, your defense. The thing is, the guys are getting out of their gaps. That's the biggest issue. There are people that are, are in the that are supposed to be in certain areas. You just got to make sure everyone's in that certain area. It's, it's really a simple concept. It's a super simple concept. 
this guy's in this gap, this guy's in this gap, and this and it goes across. It's a one gap system in that regard. Rather than you know, you have some defenses where the defensive linemen are asked to to two gap and you know be able to play on both sides of the ball, uh, and then the which usually will free up a um, free up a linebacker to come downhill and do more things. This is the linebackers have a gap, the defensive linemen have a gap. It's a, a pretty simplistic thing. The problem is when someone gets out of that gap or someone tries to do too much, you know, or someone just misses a tackle. You know, we, Isaiah Polman, I think it was Isaiah Polman told me a, a little while back is like we know if we miss a tackle, then it's going to be 15 yards. You know, because there's someone in that gap specifically. Now there is a last line of defense which is Polman, but he he is the guy that's supposed to be in the back, most supposed to make sure that the giant play doesn't happen. Give up the chunk play, but let's not give up the explosive play. And that's why when we say do your job, that's, do your job. that's what we're talking about. It's so important to do your individual responsibility and have 11 guys do that so that you do have good run fits. You do uh, take care of your individual job so that you don't have a 15-yard play happen. Exactly. And then he has a final question that says, also, why with the players that we have, does this defense consistently break down on the edges with run plays outside the tackles? You'd figure the guy would be smart enough to come up with a solution for that by now. Thanks again. Love the show. LGT third on the peristyle. It goes back to just doing your job. You know, it just seems very difficult, but it's a simple concept. Just do your job and then things will work. So you look at the reverse. They ran for what 51 yard touchdown, 52 yards, whatever it was. Braden Lizzie coming around the edge. Clay Helton says, you know, abs- actually we had the absolute perfect call in the reverse. We're bringing pressure underneath, and Christian got caught just surfing a little bit at the line of scrimmage rather than his job is to go straight upfield seven yards and just sit there waiting for it. He got lulled to sleep just a little bit, and it got outside of him. And that's what it comes now. Some people have I tweeted this out, and some people said, well, you can't throw a kid under the, under the bus like that. You can't blame the players. It, it's accountability to an extent. Does that need to be aired? I mean, I'm sure this is being aired in the locker room for sure. I don't know if you need to tell, you know, on Trojans Live this story, but, um, you know, if the question comes up, it comes up. But if he does his responsibility and is seven yards, like Clay Houghton said, now I don't know exactly what everyone's responsibility is on every play. I try, guys, but I don't know everyone. Uh, but if he does that, then Braden Lindsay is at most cutting inside of him and there's extra help defenders there and – you know, it's either a loss or, you know, maybe a uh, minimal to okay game, you know, but it's not a 52-yard touchdown run because the cornerback on that play was in man coverage. He takes off with the receiver and just opens up that that whole lane because the defender, the other defenders were coming across the formation, maybe being a little bit over aggressive too because they're not staying in where they're supposed to be. So, you know, it's just if people stay where they're supposed to be, and it's it's one of the most frustrating things as a coach. Um, you know, in any sport is when you put people and what you, when you think you've done, you're like, oh, this is a great call. Oh, if you would just, you know, because I, I, I used to call pitches for a summer league team. It's like, you have to call the change up. It's a perfect pitch, you know, and it's just, he doesn't throw it in the zone. Like, oh, it, he was set up perfectly for this. If you just throw, you didn't even have to throw it, you just throw it right down the middle. The guy's not hitting it. He's so far out in front. But you know, just like, you, in your head, you're like, yeah, this is perfect. This is perfect. You got, you forget there has to be execution. Now, how do you get guys to execute? Um, that's that's been their biggest issue. You know, it's technique and fundamentals. And why are those not being? You know, why are those continuing to be an issue? That's more of a a concern. Is they're setting people up in the right areas most of the time, 
there's been a couple times where it's just been like, there's no one there. But almost all the time, there's someone over there that's not getting the job done, not making the tackle, or not you know not staying outside where they're supposed to. So sometimes it just comes down to that. All right, let's move on to our final question slash email of the pod. It's from our buddy May Bet. She says, "Hello, Keely and Chaka. This is May Bet from Ontario. There's been some talk about Patrick Chun of Washington State being a good fit for the AD position at SC. Do you think he's savvy enough to negotiate TV deals that will be beneficial for USC? Keep feuding." Keep up the excellent job. Thanks, and fight on. Well, as far as I know, the athletic directors don't actually negotiate the TV deals themselves. You know, that's on the commissioner. They're supposed to be the ones to, to negotiate those deals. Now, the power that each athletic director has can help sway what the commissioner does, and that's kind of the case in any time you have you know, conference votes or you have, you know, you're looking at individual things for your conference. Each athletic director has a certain amount of sway, does Patrick Chun, if he came to USC, would he have more sway than he does at Washington State? Yes. Is he ready to have that much sway? I would think so. You know, I, I think he has a good resume. You know, from not only being in the Pac-12 now at Washington State for a little while, but also having been at Ohio State in a Power Five conference at, in the Big Ten, and you know, just his track record seems like he would be a good fit. Now, you'd be a much better fit than Pat Hayden or Lin Swan. You know, to help push you know usc's prerogatives you know instead of just taking whatever has kind of been given to them because the the biggest thing that usc has gotten in the past oh i don't know since you know going to the pac-12 was okay well we still get to play notre dame every year and at this certain point and we're still going to make the weekender every year those are like the two biggest things that they've been able to do other than that there hasn't been a ton of things that have gone and been beneficial for USC compared to the rest of the conference. So I think it's, it's a situation where, you know, if you have an AD come in that has experience and knows what they're doing, then it's, it's going to be more beneficial because they're going to know how to, to uh, mine the landscape. Yeah, I guess to your point earlier, I think my question would be about USC's next athletic director. Are they ready to come in and assume the role and the power that USC should have in the conference? The interesting thing about Chun is like, you're if you're at Washington State, you don't have the amount of pull and leverage as you do if you're sitting at USC. So can he assume that, make that change, and take up the throne that USC has in the conference, if you will? I feel like USC has kind of uh, relegated that, kind of gone behind the scenes a little bit and not been the school of the Pac-12. And, and the Pac-12 needs USC to be the school because it helps everyone else. You need USC to be good in the money-making sports, and you need them to, you know, to, to be able to push the conference narrative a little bit more. If USC is really good in football, I think it helps because of yep. the tradition and stuff. Um, and it just the fact that no one's been able to – you've seen USC has been weak for a decade or so, and no one stepped up into the vacuum and said, okay, well, if I'm good, if I'm Oregon with Chip Kelly – you know, then the rest of the conference will continue to thrive or the rest of the conference will, will even be better. It just hasn't happened. So I think when that happens, you look back and go, when's the Pac-12 been you know, most respected and most envied? When USC's been good. So maybe that's probably better for the Pac-12. And, you know, for USC fans, obviously they would prefer USC being good in basketball and football. But, or you know, the conference would be at its best when UCLA basketball is doing well and USC football is doing well. Yep, because those are you know historic programs that everyone knows. You know, you get them on national TV now. People are watching more of your games and stuff because they want to see Reggie Bush versus Fresno State. 
You know, so and that's something you haven't necessarily seen recently. Already. How do you think this weekend's gonna go, shotgun? Uh I don't know. We'll see if they can contain Khalil Tate. You know, there's a big there's I don't know what the spread is, but USC could lose this one easily to me because of the guys on that defense that are not there that yeah. are the key guys to containment of a running quarterback. You know, the the will linebacker and the nickelback, you know, having those two guys out, that's a that's a big uh, big question mark, big hole for USC. We'll see how the young guys fill in. Yeah, I completely agree. Alrighty, that's gonna wrap it up for this week's podcast. Homecoming. Homecoming. Yeah, we we came back too for a podcast, so everyone's returning this week. <laughs> Alrighty, that's gonna wrap it up for this week's podcast. That's shotgun. I'm Keely. We'll see y'all next week. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus.